That, in many ways, was the text that we're about to read. Um, Let me set it up, if I may. Um, Some of you may be familiar with the children's story, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. Uh, I remember reading that umpteenth number of times to my kids as they were growing up. In case you're not familiar with it, uh, I didn't grow up reading it, so maybe some of you, uh, this is new to you, the story, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. Here's the gist. So there's this little donkey named Sylvester who lives in the town of Oatsdale. And Sylvester, his his, uh, uh, hobby, I guess you could say, is to go out and to collect pebbles, rocks of unusual shapes and colors. And one day, sure enough, Sylvester finds this round red pebble. And playing around with it over time, he discovers that this is a magic pebble. It grants wishes And as he's messing around with this thing one day, a lion comes upon the scene, startles him. Sylvester, kind of in a a knee-jerk reaction, wishes himself, at a sense of self-protection, wishes himself to become a rock, which is fine, understandable in the moment, because the lion's certainly not going to mess with a donkey-sized rock. However, now Sylvester is in a plight. Because in order to make the stone work, you have to be touching it and to speak. The stone has rolled off of Sylvester, and he cannot speak. And so the rest of the story as it unfolds is Sylvester's desperate desire to come back, to be turned back, to be transformed back into his self. And the frantic search of his family and the people of Oatsdale, or the animals, the animals of Oatsdale, to, to, to searching for him. What became of Sylvester? All they know is there is this new rock in the middle of this field. And then what seems to be just a search in vain and um, a sense of hopelessness as you keep turning the pages. Well, it does get better in case you do want to read it for yourself. But um, I will tell you, there's something about that story even when I would sit down and read it to my kids, that really unsettled me. And it's not just the nightmarish idea of for all eternity being a rock. There was that. But as I, as I thought about that, even, even this past week, it occurred to me, I think there's something deeper in here that unsettles me. And as you think about it, it might unsettle you too. As you think back to times in your life Maybe right now, a season in which you're in, in which you feel unseen and unknown. Does that feel, does that that resonate? Times in which you felt unseen and unknown, there but invisible. You may know, in fact, that no few studies recently have been done of our, of our culture. And uh, it's been well documented that we are suffering from an epidemic of loneliness. And by the way, that was before COVID. That was before the issues of isolation caused by COVID. Our culture was already suffering from an epidemic of isolation and loneliness. Does the Lord have anything to say to us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to 
turn there with me, or you can just follow along there on the screen as well. Um, If you're trying to find the Psalms, I would just say quite literally and metaphorically, it is the heart of the Bible. So basically, you can just open up your Bible, and there it's going to be pretty much right there in the middle. There's 150 of them. We are in Psalm 139. Hear now the Word of God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a tongue is on, a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven, In the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for its beauty and imagery, but more than even that, we thank you for the reality that David is speaking of here. Thank you for gripping his heart as you did in that moment and that season of his life as he was writing this down. Thank you, O Holy Spirit, for your wondrous work of inspiration um, such that what David is writing here is nothing more and nothing less than what was intended. Uh, Thank you uh, for bringing us here For these few minutes that we have to contemplate these things, uh, we ask that you would be speaking 
that you would be moving in very deep places of our own hearts where we need the assurance and reassurance, perhaps maybe even some of us for the very first time here today, uh, hearing such things, contemplating such things as is, are being spoken of here in this psalm. Uh, we need this more than we know, and we pray this, asking this, knowing that you hear and are delighted, ready to answer such prayers. We pray in the matchless name of our risen, ruling, returning Savior, Jesus. Amen. The Martian. The Martian uh, is a great movie, even better book if you haven't read it. It's the story of the American astronaut, fictional story of the, the American astronaut Mark Watney in the year 2035, who is marooned on the surface of Mars because of an accident and just things that went haywire in the course of a storm there on the surface. He is left uh, by his crew as they are taking off, thinking that he is dead they head back to earth. Uh, Watney, as he then wakes up and realizes what has happened, uh, realizes that, that he needs to then take an approach if he's going to have any hope of surviving of working the problem. That is, taking each obstacle to his survival in turn and, and just, just working the problem. So the first thing he does, as you can imagine, would be to tend to his wounds caused by the accident. Then he begins to think in terms of, well, food supply. What do I need to do there? And so he plants these potatoes there in this uh, greenhouse sort of thing there as part of, of the base. Then he realizes that, well, I'm going to need to establish communication with NASA. They have no idea that I'm alive, uh, and they can't seem, I can't receive a signal. I can't transmit a signal. And so out he goes in this excursion, which actually, I don't remember how the movie does it, but the, the book is quite clear. It takes weeks for him to do this. He goes out in this rover that he has and finds this probe and another older rover, brings them back, doctors them up, is able to establish communication with NASA. And then there begins this intense series of conversations and communications one to another to then pull off this incredible rescue, sorry, spoiler, rescue, because, of course, the tagline for the film is bring him home. It's an extraordinary story. It, it really is. Uh, there's an, an intense, desperate desire on, the, on behalf of both sides, mission control and this marooned astronaut, this desperate desire, each wanting to let the other know that they are there. That they are there. There's something of that, like that, in this psalm, but it's going one way in this case. Of one side desperately desiring that the other side would know that they are there. That they are there. The theme clearly when you start going back and rereading through the psalm, is know. To know is clearly the theme. Because of the repetition, look with me if you can. If you've got a Bible there in front of you, you can see it, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Skipping down to verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Verse 6, such knowledge 
there you see it, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. By the way, you can see there just verse 1 in the verses 23, 24. It's the bookends of the whole psalm, this theme of God knowing. And then you see something of a reciprocation with this in verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So what do we learn here? Just take a step back. What do we learn here in this psalm, through this psalm? What do we know here of of God and of ourselves? Just very, very basic things. Psalm 139, 101. Okay, what are, we, what are basic things that we're learning here of God and of ourselves? He wants us to know that we are known. He wants us to know that we are known. E- e- let me press a little harder, more specifically. He wants us to know that he knows us. He wants us this morning, you, me, together, his people, to know that he knows us. There's two parts to this. If you printed out the outline, this is where I'm going. Two very simple points. One being that he knows us. What does that mean exactly? And then secondly, what it means to know that he knows you. So not just, you know, theoretically, but applying it, living it out. So first he knows you, he knows us, he sees us, he knows us, and then following up from that, what does it mean to be known in this way? And the psalm points to both. Well, first, God knows us. This is verses 1 through 16. Now, I'm not going to reread all that for time's sake. Uh, again, follow along with me. I'll, I keep, I'll give you some, some uh, landmarks as we're moving through the psalm, okay? But this is verses 1 through 16, where it's clear David is, trying, is, is communicating to us the wonder of this reality that we are so thoroughly, so exhaustively known. Verses 1 through 6, he shows us we are seen. We are, we are seen beyond any CAT scan, X-ray, any, anything you can imagine. God sees us. There's nothing walled off about us from his sight, his perception, his understanding, his insight. Everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, he sees and knows across the board. Nothing left out. It's, it's spelled out here for us. He, we are, we're known across, seen across the board and to the uttermost. Not partially, not at some stages, but before and during and after. He sees us thoroughly, exhaustively, wondrously. This is what theologians refer to as, for years, refer to as God's omniscience. He knows all, but specifically in this psalm, he knows all about us, about you. His omniscience applied. That's what Psalm 139 is about. Not just his omniscience, but his omniscience applied down on the ground, down on the ground in our lives. So we see he knows us, we are seen uh, we, David takes us further, verses 7 through 12. Not only are we seen, but we are 
never alone, seen to the uttermost, to the nth degree, and never alone. There's this inescapable, inescapable, inescapable knowledge that is described here. David asked this, well, sort of rhetorical, but he does ask it, question, where shall I go from your spirit? Is there some place that I can get away somehow from you? Is it possible? And the clear answer resounding here is an emphatic no. No. There's no way you can be separated from me, pulled away from me, hidden from me. To your great harm, no. No, there is nowhere. This inescapable knowledge, this ever-present care, never-ending, ever-penetrating. David speaks of these, these pairs there in verses 7 through 12. These, these, to, to make the, the point, you know, it, there's, uh, a, there's no place that is so high, no place that is so far down for the, to the uttermost east out of the horizon, to the west, to that horizon. No, I am with you. I see you and I am with you. You are never alone. And this is what theologians refer to. He gave you one big, heavy theological word. So not just his omniscience, but this is now his omnipresence. He is everywhere. But again, bringing it down to the ground. It's not just theoretical. David is basking in the wonder that God is everywhere with him. And it's true of you and I. Oh, that we would not leave this at the 10,000-foot level, that we would let Psalm 139 speak to us personally, personally, letting, letting our names be put into the singular first personal pronouns. He goes further. We are seen. He is, we are never alone. We are seen, we are never alone. And David goes further to say, and this has always been so. Verses 13 through 16. And this has always been so. This is the, particularly, I think this is the heightened part of that song that was just sung a moment ago. Uh, we're formed, he formed our inward parts, knitted together in the mother's womb, and those beautiful, beautiful imagery that goes on uh, from there. So the, the, the question that we might want to ask, and, and David's getting at it before we can even ask it, getting an answer in, in our hands before we could even ask it. How can it be so? How can it possibly be so that this God could, could see us so thoroughly and be with us wherever we could contemplate of, of, of going? How could it be so? How could it be so? And his answer to us is simply, don't you know? I made you. <laughs> I made you. Which is, stands, that answer, that beautiful beautiful, striking answer stands in utter contrast to the materialistic myths of our day that say it would be time and chance that you just popped into the, the world. No. No. David here is describing this incredible creative skill. And by the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out here that in these verses, in particular verses 13 through 16, you see a, a powerful statement here for the value of human life there in the womb from the moment of conception. It's right there in, the, in these verses. The Lord's creative skill could, could not be more plain. His care 
each part of you with eternal intentionality. Each part of every one of us. Now think of how exhaustive that is. Every part, psychologically, emotionally, physically, every part of you intentionally, eternally crafted, made, designed as you are. And as though that's not enough, he says your whole path, the book, every page, every word, every punctuation mark, not just your beginning, not just your formation, but everywhere you're going before you even started going, I wrote it. It's, it's, we are so seen. Can I just put it that way? We are so seen and so known, so thoroughly, so exhaustively. And I want to come back to this. Psalm 139, do not mistake this for a theological treatise. Yes, it speaks to the omniscience and omnipresence of God, but not in theory. It's applied, it's personal, it's embraced. David is breathing it in and breathing it out. And it is filling his heart with with wonder. This intimate, eternal knowledge is landing on him. Now, here's the question before we move to point two. How does this infinite, eternal knowledge land on you? There are two very basic ways and very different ways to respond to this. One would be to feel exposed, to feel threatened, perhaps even angered because you know what he can see. And you don't want anybody knowing that stuff. That's one way. The other is for the Christian. It's the message of the good news of the gospel. The person, the the man or woman, boy or girl, of any age, any time, any place, who knows that we are covered in the righteousness of the Son and showered with the delight of the Father such that his, this knowledge, this eternal intimate knowledge of us in no way strikes us as being threatening, but rather knowing who knows us and his love for us, it's the best news we could hear. The absolute best news that we could possibly hear, knowing that we are so known, so seen, and so known. Friends, how does this intimate, eternal knowledge of God land on you this morning? It takes us to the second point. Not just the reality that God knows us, but now thinking through the implications of this, what does it look like to know this? What is it like to know that we are known? David takes us there. 
He speaks, he speaks of this. What does it look like to be gripped by this? A, a life shaped. and as, What does it look like to breathe out these things that we are breathing in? And that's where we go with verses 17 through 24. So verses 17 and 18. I will start reading now a little bit just to... Now it's been a little while since we read the text. Uh, David is utterly overwhelmed. Verses 17 through 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. God's, David is saying... God's thoughts of him are such a delight to him. God's thoughts of him are precious to him. He prizes them. They are of such value, inestimable value. No accountant can, can, can parse it out. There's no accounting, no measuring, no quantifying of how valuable David knows his standing is. He can't get over it. He has no words for it. He's utterly overwhelmed, utterly overwhelmed. He moves from there to not just that, but a wholehearted devotion. Verses 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate you? Hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, it's very easy to misunderstand this, but we need to understand this in, in the right way. David is seeing and he's facing full on the reality of a fallen, broken world. The blasphemy and the treachery, the hatred of the living God and man's hatred of his fellow man. And it grieves his heart. David recognizes that this is not the way things are supposed to be. And out of loyalty to this God who knows him so well, one whose heart has been captured by this one whose heart is reaching out to him, he distances himself from those that he would describe as his enemies. He speaks here of hatred and the enemies, and not in the sense of, and I think in our 21st century supposedly sophisticated Western ways of thinking David is not expressing here personal vengeance. He is not keeping score and taking down names and going to go out and, and for a vendetta's sake. That's not what's going on here at all. But rather, David's longing is for the elimination of evil in the world around him. He is grieved. Let me put it this way. David's heart is grieved by what grieves his God's heart. David stands opposed to that which stands opposed to his God's good and holy purposes. That's what we see going on here. I was speaking about this with some friends just yesterday. There are times that it is good and right for the Christian to be angry. Did you know God did not call you to be nice? Indeed, it, let me just go push a little further. There are times, no, no, it's always, this is always the case. It is wrong to be okay with that which is wrong. And we've sat on our hands a lot about things that are wrong. It is wrong to be okay 
with things that are wrong, or if I can flip it, it is not right to be okay with things that are not right. That's what you see here with the son, the son of, with David. How much more so, in fact, we keep reading through the scriptures, how much more so the great David's greater son, the son of David, who is going to come and make it all right, make it all new, such as his devotion to his father's holy purposes. Well, you keep reading, and as a consequence of this, David being over, utterly overwhelmed and this wholehearted devotion, we hear an, uh, this humble, beautiful longing in verses 23 and 24. The very end, this is the, the second half of the bookends. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is not just looking around at the brokenness and the evil out there. Knowing who knows him, he's then free to look inside. Not just look outside at the evil around him, but look inside at the evil within him. Reflecting on the fact that those very sins that grieve him and stand those things, those trends, those behavior patterns, those life patterns, those heart patterns that stand opposed to his God's purposes, this, the, the seed of all of that is in the soil of his own soul. And so he prays. He prays to this one who knows him so well. Oh, Lord, help me. Help me, show me, have mercy upon me. For I know that you know me. I know that you know me. See, this is what, friends, this is what it looks like to know that we are known. Do we think this way? Are our desires patterned in this way? Are our prayers, do they look anything like this? Are you and I overwhelmed by this knowledge and such then praying with this wholehearted devotion and this humble longing? If, if we're not, there's a very simple answer. If, we, if we're not praying like verses 17 through 24, then we need to go back to verses 1 through 16. You see, the, the one is an overflow of the other. The second part of the psalm is, is, an, is the application, the implication, the natural extension the, or the explosion of a heart that's been gripped by the first part. Do you know, do you know that he knows you? Do you know that he knows you? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this psalm and thank you for speaking these words. Thank you for loving us so. Thank you for answering the questions, some of the deepest, well, all of the deepest, most searching, penetrating questions that we could ask. Is anyone there? Does anyone see? Does anyone know? 
resounding answer from the psalm is yes. We ask that you would help us to hear, to breathe this in deeply, to drink of this sweet stream and change us, we pray. 